So hello and welcome to Bid Foods Talking Food podcast. This is a podcast series where we talk to people across the industry and from our own business to provide you with expert opinions and insight on the latest hot topics in the industry. And they don't get much hotter than Brexit. I'm Catherine Hinchcliffe and I head up corporate marketing at Bidfood and I'm your guest host for today as we look in close detail at what will happen as we approach the end of the transition period. As we speak today, face-to-face talks are in progress with the uh, chief EU negotiator, Michel Barnier, and his UK counterpart, Lord David Frost, and we have no idea how those will pan out. But whilst we hold our breath for the outcome, I'm talking to James Bilby, CEO at the Federation of Wholesale Distributors, the FWD, who's been leading the sector's response to all things Brexit, advising members as they prepare for the end of the transition period and working closely with government as the voice of the sector. We also have Jim Gouldy, Bidfood's Supply Chain Director, who has been leading the charge on our plans and preparations from a supply and availability standpoint, as well as Tim Adams, Director of Corporate Sales and Marketing, who's been liaising with our customers to really understand their needs and scope the response and support that Bidfood will provide. So let's start with James. Hi, James. Hello. Um, At this stage in the negotiations, we have no idea whether or not we'll end up with a hard exit from the EU or a trade deal in the bag. Um, I'm not Mystic Meg, um, and I don't think anyone has a clue at this juncture which way it's going to roll. But what dialogue have you had with government um, from the FWD's point of view? And what insight has that given you into what we can expect as an industry? The likelihood of a deal is probably uh, more so now, speaking on uh, Friday, the 23rd of October, than it perhaps was um, earlier in the week. Um, Talks are beginning to intensify. The move music is changing. Um, I think we're in slightly different territory now, um, and we, you know, negotiations are taking place daily, including weekends. So they're starting to intensify. So I think we are closer to a deal than we have been at any point in these negotiations. I know there was a bit of brinkmanship uh, this time last week by the Prime Minister saying that he was walking away uh, from the deal, uh, from the negotiations, but I I don't think that was ever likely to happen. So we're a lot closer than we've ever been. Um, And I think we know largely what's going to happen in lots of different areas, but there are clearly a whole set of questions um, that we don't yet know the answer to. I think there's probably three areas that will change when we do leave the EU. So in terms of imports, we know largely what's going to happen. It's going to be the same now, um, uh, pretty much when we leave uh, in January. Um, Exports, pretty much we know what's going to happen. We know the set of arrangements for exports. Um, Northern Ireland, um, a huge amount of uncertainty there. But what have we been doing as FWD? Well, we have been the sort of point person, if you like, liaising with government talking to them about some of the challenges that face the wholesale sector, some of those specific challenges, and then also reporting back to members about what they need to do with regard to being prepared uh, for EU exit in January. So there are a number of things that we've been able to help with, a number of things that we're still waiting clarification for. You know, as the 
organization which is responsible if you like for bringing the industry together and then providing an opportunity for questions to be asked either directly or via us but also for direct dialogue with officials um, and last year when we were looking at the cliff edge of no deal i think th three separate occasions we had uh, a series of high level round tables with um wholesalers and officials to talk about what was needed at that point hopefully we won't be staring down that barrel again this year um but i think it's been much less intense this time around because obviously we've been dealing with covid19 um and that has been you know all consuming really so brexit's almost been a bit of an afterthought which is bizarre really because we know we're leaving or we we left in in uh, the end of January. We know on the thirty first of December things are going to change. So I think the focus now, albeit we're heading into another wave of COVID restrictions and and problems there, government and the EU are intensifying talks. We'll be intensifying talks as well. Paint us a picture, if you will, what the best and worst case scenarios might be. What could the industry expect to have to deal with? If we have a deal, um, will we be able to trade in food with the EU? Yes, absolutely. Of course we will. Um, if we have no deal, we probably will. You know, It's going to be a lot more complicated. We know there's going to be customs declarations, whether we have a deal or we don't have a deal. We know there's going to be security declarations again. Tariffs is the really interesting one. Um, if we have a deal, we will be able to trade tariff-free with the EU, uh, probably. Um, pro but um, if we have no deal, will we be able to, um, will tariffs be imposed? Absolutely, yes, they will. So I think, you know, that's probably the key thing, the key change with regard to um, what's going to happen with food prices. But I think there are a number of challenges as well. So if you look at things like meat and dairy, both going in and going out, that's possibly the biggest risk to the sector, regardless of whether we have a deal or not. The nature of the market is definitely going to change because of the checks that are required, whether we have a deal or we don't have a deal. So the export health certificates um, and the need for official veterinarian stamping and signing those forms at point of departure, that's going to be really difficult. And the, the export health certificate has to be the right one for the commodity. But there's a, there's a shortage of vets. So how that's going to work in practice, I really don't know. So we're going to see that... If you think about every consignment of fresh, frozen meat, dairy products must be signed off by a vet 24 hours before departure. Um, there's probably 300,000 export health declarations, which would be sort of five times what they are now. There's only 1,200 qualified official vets. So that is a major problem. So, so regardless of what happens, whether we have a deal or no deal, the industry can expect to see a number. the, the, the nature of uh, the food that we eat and the prices that we pay for that is going to change regardless of what happens. So some of the pinch points are actually going to be by category, aren't they? But are there any pinch points that you see um, in terms of routes in and out of the UK as well, particular routes? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the obvious one would be the short straights. So we know there's going to be challenges at, at um, Dover, the, the Dover-Calais. Um, so, you know, a lot of products are coming in from the EU mainland, but then also not just coming in via the short straights often sent direct to Republic of Ireland, cross-docked in the UK and then sent on to the island of Ireland. Um, and I think once those goods arrive in the UK, custom duties have to be paid, declarations have to be made, even if there's a zero duty rate. You know, Rerouting and customs warehousing is going to be uh, a, a something of a challenge, I think. So we are going to see 
problems with um, products, not so much coming into the UK, but stuff going out the other way. So if the paperwork is incorrect, it's going to be really difficult. I think the, the phrase that we would use is no documents, no trade. And the preparedness of the industry for that, I think is very much a mixed picture. Um, so I think there are businesses like Bidfood who are well prepared. Um, and there are businesses who aren't necessarily aware of what they need to do to trade or move goods after January the 1st. There are those who you describe as unprepared. So they think everything's under control, but they haven't really covered all bases. Um, some of those uh, are unable to move goods because of, as I was talking about before, shortage of things like vets. And there are those who are unwilling. So they will just choose to pause or permanently cease trading across the EU border. So if you think about mo goods moving freely between us and the rest of the EU now, that's not going to be the case after January the 1st. So preparedness is the magic word. Um, from your conversations with government and with the customs authorities, what kind of sense do you get about how well they are prepared um, in terms of their systems and processes and the teams themselves? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of planning going on. So we've got the border operating model now, uh, which answers a lot of questions, I think. Uh, but there's still obviously clear, so clearly a number of things that are yet uh, to be really understood about what happens with the processes there are a lot of challenges there's also an issue around customs movements and businesses making declarations so you're bringing products in to the uk you have to make customs declarations either in january or later in the year depending on the type of commodity but there's a, a real shortage of customs agents there's not enough people to be able to do that paperwork for businesses uh, businesses themselves won't know because it's quite complex and difficult so i think whilst the information is available about what needs to happen i think there are a number of challenges about whether that will actually be able to happen in practice so you know a lot of businesses like bidfood and others will be stopped building now to try and circumnavigate some of those processes in the very short term but we know that there are a real shortage of customs agents and the ability to be able to train those up in real time, I think it's going to be very, very difficult. That's probably the thing that I would be most concerned about if I was a business bringing products into the UK. And I guess we've only got two months and counting down from that left, haven't we, before um, December the 31st. Um, so given it's a mixed picture, what's been your advice um, to suppliers and wholesalers about how best to be prepared? The consistent message that we have um, given to our wholesalers and our suppliers is prepare for no deal. Albeit, I suspect that probably won't happen and I don't think that's ever been really likely. Um, and if there were to be no deal, it would only be very much in the short term. Um, I think the EU would be coming back to the negotiating table in very short order to uh, agree a free trade arrangement in, um, you know, in January. But our guidance has always been to make sure that you're keeping up to date with all the information that's coming out, albeit there's a huge amount of it. But plan for no deal, so prepare for the worst and hope for the, hope for the best, really. We've been working collaboratively with all points in the supply chain, so manufacturers, um, importers and producers, to come together to offer advice and guidance. So we've, we we are part of a 
group that runs a, a website called EU Food Hub, previously Brexit Food Hub. And that is a one-stop shop, if you like, for all information that businesses need to know insofar as that information is available uh, for them to check on, on various different elements. So I, I would say to listeners, if you haven't been on that site, it's uh, open source, anyone can go onto it, please do, because any questions that can be answered will be answered there. So stay up to date, stay informed, and don't assume if we do get a deal that there isn't any preparation that you've got to do by the sounds of it. Absolutely. We know that things are going to change no matter what. The fundamental difference between the no deal planning now and the no deal plans of 2019, then the binary was no deal or the status quo. Now it's no deal or changes that you have to make. So regardless of whether it's deal or no deal, there are things that you need to have done and should be doing now, not like it was last year when it was either off the cliff edge or continuing to have a nice stroll. So it's going to change. And if you haven't thought about it now, then it's probably a bit too late. And I guess one thing we know is going to change are um, the kind of rules around um, immigration. Uh, What do you think that will mean for food and drink wholesalers? That is a concern. There's no question about that. So the points-based system, I think, will make it difficult and expensive to recruit staff because of the nature of skill the definition of skill so the minimum salary threshold 26,000 I think it's 25,600 actually um, it's quite high and the skill level again is quite high so there'll be a number of people you know doing really really important and essential roles within the food and drink supply chain who wouldn't be in scope and I think that's going to be quite difficult to fill some of those gaps i think we will see some labor shortages there have been a lot of job losses unfortunately with covid19 which is uh, you know a, a tragedy for those involved but it might make it potentially easier to recruit people uh, because there'll be um, a bit of demand there and, and supply will be available but i think you know we we would want a couple of things to happen on immigration to make it easier so streamline process for visas making the visa costs um, a lot lower so it's uh, it's cheaper for businesses to bring labor in from around the world but then also ensuring that the skilled workers are on the shortage occupation list so i think food and drink is absolutely critical to the nation's infrastructure and it should be recognized as such but i think as the scheme stands at the moment there are potential pressure points and risks associated with employment What more support in your conversations with government have you been pushing for for um, the the industry, the food and drink industry? There's a bit of complacency um, on the government side in some areas. So, you know, we're asking questions. They say, oh, we're still looking at it. The the clock is very much ticking. Um, And the sooner we know, the better. I mean, George Eustace on a call that we had with him a couple of weeks ago said that businesses will know what they need to do by the first week of November. That's only next week. Uh, so I suspect that timeline will slip. So, you know, we need help and we need that guidance so we can prepare. Northern Ireland would be the obvious one, I think, you know. But whenever we've had conversations with uh, government and officials and, and ministers, in fact, there seems to be a little bit of complacency. We need certainty uh, and we need that as soon as possible. 
So I'm also going to bring in Jim Gouldy at this point, who is our um, supply chain director. And Jim's also been having quite a lot of conversation with government and DEFRA in particular. Do you have similar concerns about um, the uncertainty around Northern Ireland or are you getting a clear steer from government on that point? A lot of our conversations are held with James and the FWD in conjunction with DEFRA, so we would certainly share those concerns. Um, we also talk to businesses in Northern Ireland, so we have a partner that we work with, um, and the position there seems to change quite dramatically in terms of their understanding of what is required and our understanding of what is required. I'd say of the taking James's pointers to sort of some of the views going forward, we will we are preparing for a no deal situation and what we're terming a reasonable worst case. And we have a view of what that means, and we've got our plans in place against that. The biggest challenge is nobody is quite clear on what it means for Northern Ireland, so that is a lot more difficult for us to prepare for. Although for us, it's it's a very, very small part of our business, but it does include certain key customers, and it's difficult for us to advise them at this stage as to what they need to do and what we're doing about it. But it's it, it's probably the biggest area of uncertainty, certainly. On the positive front, are there any opportunities that you see that Brexit presents to businesses in the UK, particularly in the food and drink sector, over the short or medium term? If you believe uh, the Prime Minister, he would say that it's a fantastic opportunity for the UK. I, I would say I'm possibly less optimistic than he is. But, you know, in the medium to long term, we need to make it work. So there will, I'm sure there will be opportunities to do things differently uh, with uh, you know, other countries around the world, um, some interesting trade deals being potentially struck, bringing products in. I mean, there are obviously risks associated with that as well with regard to uh, food standards. Um, we want to ensure that we maintain the, the standards that we have for our food here in the UK and not reduce that in any way. So we'll have to wait and see. We don't really know what's going to happen. I mean, if you look at the situation that we're currently trading in, so you wouldn't choose to leave the EU at the end of December anyway uh certainly not when you're dealing with covid as well so i suspect without wanting to be too pessimistic and gloomy i suspect january is going to be extremely difficult if we can get through that then we may be able to see some of the more positive opportunities i mean certainly you know the government wants us to believe that it, it, it now provides a different way of doing things um and you know we'll be better off when we've left at Michael Gove gave the analogy the other day of went on a call saying it was like moving house. It brings expense and hassle, but you decide to move house because you want to be enjoying new horizons and in control of your future. So, you know, that's quite a, a, a gloss on it, but you'll, we'll take that and uh, use that as an inspiration, maybe. I mean, that's one of the areas where the um, negotiations are floundering is around state aid the government's ability to be able to provide support to businesses. We've seen during COVID-19 a huge amount of support given to business, not so much to wholesale as we would have liked, although hopefully that's beginning to change. That is really something that the EU don't want to happen because they want to have a level playing field with regard to business support. But if government is able to provide more help, more support for infrastructure and jobs, then that is absolutely a positive. And, and we've seen the way that we've managed to stave off collapse of the economy through the support that the government's offered during COVID-19. And that will be incredibly important in the, uh, in the next six months to a year.
So I'm going to um, move on to a few more questions for, for Jim. How much time and effort is, has been focused on Brexit at Bidfood over the last couple of years and, and is going on right now? So over the last couple of years, I mean, the, our ability to focus on Brexit certainly more recently has, as James sort of alluded to, been a lot more challenging given we've had probably more immediate and bigger challenges across the industry, as has everybody. Um, if we go back 18 months, two years, um, so so what we've done is we set up a senior team in the business um, um, sponsored by members from our leadership team from different work streams. Um, so I look after product availability and sort of duty impact. Tim will look after customer and communications. Um, and we'd have a finance work stream um, looking at sort of impact upon sort of foreign exchange um, and sort of related wider uh, financial implications, uh, regulations, um, and then we've got sort of a, a HR work stream. So, so senior members from the business have been quite heavily involved in this. Um, if we go back to sort of the edge of the cliff that we were talking about under James, sort of a, what is probably a year ago now, time flies, um, um, we incurred significant cost um, in terms of our Brexit preparations. Um, we rented external warehouses. We bought in multi-million pounds worth of, of stock. Given the impact of what would be sort of falling off a cliff, we deemed to be far too big for us to bear and far too big for our customers to bear. Um, probably more so this time. So, so we're prepared for Brexit at least three times previously in ter- in sort of terms of our plans. Um, this time round, we're doing we're following the same principles as we've done before, um, but probably not quite as we just don't have the the ability to focus on it as much. But certainly, there's been it's probably the second biggest priority in the business at the minute. Dealing with the impact of COVID is the biggest. Um, so yeah, it's it was a subject that we were quite pleased was not. Um, well, we had the transition period of, of this year, but nobody thought this year was going to involve what it did. So it, it's been fairly time-consuming for us all. Talk us through what you see are the key challenges from an availability standpoint and what Bid Food and your team, because um, you're in the hot seat on the availability and supply chain front, right? Um, what they've been doing to mitigate them. So certainly I, I share James's view that leaving the, the EU in the current climate without a trade deal is unlikely. I think we're sort of seeing the potential impact if we did previously and if we do now would be horrendous for everybody. Um, but yeah, with the COVID issues, it's, it's something that we would hate to think would happen and would think is unlikely. We're seeing some sort of warming up as to sort of what the government sort of uh, mood music, as, as we say. Um, but we prepare as though we're going to. And, and we prepare under what we call a, well, the, dov- the government term, a reasonable worst-case scenario. Um, and I've sort of just described that for two seconds. So the view is that you'll see delays of product coming into the UK. Um, more product going out of the UK, but because it's a sort of linked supply chain of vehicles bringing product in, then taking them back out and then struggling, particularly struggling to get back out and you're seeing 
likely delays of vehicles um, leaving the UK means further implication of goods coming back in. That's that's our concern. Mm -hmm. The government prediction is in the first three months you'd see sort of a 45 to 60 percent of uh, this is of existing flows of, of sort of transport coming in. That would what it would drop to. For a further three months, you probably see it being sort of 50 to 75 percent, and then for a further three months, um, getting back to normal sort of levels of vehicle movement. So you're talking like a full year before we get back to the current levels of, of um, flows through the ports. But that's particularly on the Dover to Calais Straits. And is that going to mean we can't get a lot of food? Uh, is there a problem with accessing food or is that going to reduce choice yes yeah, so, 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 so the the view is that there won't be specific food shortages in the UK so I don't want to say lots of hairs running against that but you are likely to see a reduction of choice if that scenario was to ever to develop and particularly you're going to have issues in shorter life product as vehicles come in to the UK get delayed or um, the just-in-time style supply chains that support short life product um, would get disrupted. So that's the biggest concern and biggest challenge. Um, um, our plans have been, or our mitigation plans are different for the different product categories that we bring in as to what we believe we can do against those. So our plans for um, frozen and ambient product, which have got much longer life, are mostly to stock build where we can and stock build where we think there is a risk, risk because um, our suppliers aren't fully prepared or the or the industry or the country isn't fully prepared and that product is of specific importance to us. For shorter life products it's much more challenging so our focus on shorter life product has been can we um, have alternatives to routes to markets and we can avoid the Dover to Calais Straits which we've had to do in the past where we've had um, um, sort of port um, port strikes in uh, Calais, for example, or big delays of product coming through Calais. Everyone has seen on the news over the last couple of years sort of the, the vehicles tailing back for products coming in. We've had to sort of route them into other ports coming into the UK, which we're fairly well versed in. So that's other entry points into the UK that you've been looking at. Uh huh. Um, and um, kind of what other strategies have you been employing? So building stocks, looking for other entry points three basic ones I suppose is building stocks where we think we have a risk and the uh, product is of importance to us um, alternative routes to market um, and what alternative products do we have um, some of those will be that the only alternative product is another EU source product um, and where we can alternatives for UK source product as well and some of that is also would you know we do plan against a, if there's shortages of chilled products and we have a frozen equivalent, we will build alternative of the frozen equivalent product. And so some of those are sourced from the UK or are any of them you're looking at yeah, sourced yeah, from around so, the so, world? So, so mm -hmm. where we can, if you can switch to sourcing from Europe to sourcing from the UK as a potential alternative, that's, that's the biggest mitigation. The challenge with that often is the reason we sourced the product originally from Europe is because it's cheaper, it's more cost effective. So you are seeing some products that are not as cheap as, um, as sort of European comparison products, but would still provide a alternative uh, solution. 
we don't want to do massive stock builds on those because we're preparing for what we don't know at the moment. So just to help the listeners get a handle on the scale of the disruption um, and the kind of numbers of products we're talking about that are at risk, um, how many products do you bid food import from Europe, for example? Um, so just, just to put some things into perspective, so, so I talk what I call our core range. These are the products that we specifically look, specifically look after. About a third of the volume of our, and I'm talking finished products, I'm not talking about ingredients for other products that, that we supply. Of our finished products, about a third of them come out of the, of the EU, both in terms of number of products and in terms of volume. So we're talking of our, I say, of our core range, about two and a half thousand products are sourced directly from the EU. Um, in terms of what bid food do, we don't actually act as the importer for the majority of those, so we're probably talking approximately 100 products, but big volume products that we would own the importation of those. So we would buy the product in Europe, we'd take title to the product in Europe, and then we'd manage that import process. So the majority of products that we bring in from the EU are from our suppliers, and we've then written to our suppliers um, working with information again that we've got from the FWD and from DEFRA as to our views of what they should prepare for um, and advising them of what we expect from them as well. And I know you've done a lot of work on risk assessment. Um, so if we are bringing in north of 2,000 products from the EU, how many of those do you deem to be at risk of, from an availability point of view? Yes, so, so again, I've lost count of how many times we've done this. Um, but it's you know if if they've all merged into one, but it's probably four or five times. I think we've worked with our suppliers, we've written them, we've revised them, and then we assess what they are doing. Um, so products may be sourced from the EU, but a number of suppliers will then hold a large amount of stock in the UK. So we would deem those sort of things to be relatively low risk. Um, but if I took the two and a half thousand products, it's they are sourced from about uh, 400, 450 suppliers. Um, we have the previous risk assessments that we've done of them, and this time around we've been more, we've asked some fairly basic questions of them as to advice to them, and then tell us what your plans are, and then we do a, a, you know, a rudimentary high, medium, and low risk. Um, if I gave a flavour of the volume, we're not talking big volume of high risk products, we're talking 50, medium risk, we're probably talking. 300, 350, and the rest we're deeming to be low risk. But again, in terms of our plans, our plans are not just for oh, it's high risk, so we need to do something about it. It's what's the importance of that product, which we then use a range of criteria against to assess what we need to do. So even on what we're saying is a low risk, if the ports get so log jammed that it can't reach anyway, that would still be of major importance to us. So we are, mit we've got mitigating actions on across a broad range of products in terms of sort of stock build. We're talking up to sort of 500 products in terms of sort of alternative products, a, a, sort of a bigger portion on top of that. But yeah, we're talking our view of our risk, specifically 50 high products, uh, 300 sort of medium products, and then sort of 2,250 with deeming to be low risk products. So Jim, what advice are you giving to suppliers about how they can be best prepared? 
again, work, working with James and um, advice from the FWD and sort of our views and the government's views, we've tried to make sure, certainly again this time around, this situation doesn't pale into insignificance given the huge challenges on the supply chain from COVID. Some fairly basic things that we think suppliers should do. So we focus from our assessment of a product comes from the EU, it's sourced from the EU. But you've got products that are sourced from the UK that may have huge reliance on EU ingredients. I can't tell everything, so we're advising our suppliers understand your supply chain, understand where their risks sit in their element of the supply chain. Um, James was talking about sort of challenges with customs agents. It's really important that if people are not familiar with this and, there's, and things will definitely change without a deal or with a deal, people that are not experts in importing or exporting, particularly for us, we're, we're, our con concern is on imports, make sure you've got a partner that understands it and is and are working with them already. Don't try and, the 31st December, try and find a customs agents to clear for you. Understand the, the, the basic documents that are required. Understand our health certificate's gonna be required. Work with your suppliers to provide that. Understand the labeling requirements. So we're, we've issued a series of sort of um, communications to our suppliers and to our customers of what our plans are and to our suppliers as to what we think they should be looking at. One thing we haven't touched on, Jim, um, is the area about tariffs and duty. How can customers understand what impact that will have on their menus? If I describe what we have done, and I say we, we are not the importer for the majority of products that we bring in. So on, say, the 100 products that we, where we are, we are clear on what the tariff impact of those would be. For the, for the others where we're not... We have then said, um, so what is the relevant um, commodity codes for those? Um, therefore, what is the a related tariff impact? And again, we've done this um, a couple of times already. The, the tariff rates that the government has said would be applied under sort of WTO terms have changed this year. Um, we have then done a full assessment of that, starting initially on the products that come in from the EU to say, what's the commodity code? What's the tariff impact? And there's some challenges to that because it's not all a straight percentage. Some of it is a price per kilo, um, some in, in, in euros. And have then worked it back to what the impact of that is uh, on a percentage per case. Um, if customers want to know the impact of those, we can now provide reports to our customers that say of products that we supply you. Um, starting from the avail availability side, it would describe the risks that we see on this um, high, medium, low perspective and what our mitigation plans are, but also describe what the specific tariff impact is from our best assessment. As I say, that is from our view um, and it will be a guide. There will also be other related costs that people need to think about. There'll be potential foreign exchange fluctuations, there'll be clearance costs. Those are not included, but this to say the specific impact of product X is Y percent. Uh, so my advice would be if you want to know um, if you import the product or if your supplier imports the product, so we, we have what we um, term sort of customer nominated or bespoke products for customers, I would suggest you need to work with your suppliers to advise you of that, but for the products that we supply, a sort of broader core range, we can tell you what our view is of that.
I'm now going to bring um, Tim Adams into the conversation. He is our Director of Corporate Sales and Marketing. And Tim's been having lots of conversations with customers recently about Brexit. How far are customers really concerned about tariffs and GT at the moment? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that it probably hasn't been on their radar over the last few months. There's been far bigger priorities for customers um, since COVID struck kind of in a big way back in March. And um, and probably for a lot of customers, this is kind of the last thing they need to be thinking about as they're looking to try and recover their own businesses. We've got um, people still on furlough across um, the industry, which means... You know, resources tight at our customers to enable them to look at kind of additional projects like Brexit. But those conversations are starting to emerge now. The questions are starting to come in and it is definitely appearing on our customers' radars. Um, I think there's a degree of fatigue around Brexit. You know, we've prepared for this now a number of times. Um, and, you know, this is seen as another preparation for Brexit and another work stream on top of a, an already busy kind of industry um, uh, workload at the moment. Um, so I think customers are also looking for businesses like Bidfood. They're looking for the FWD as well and other industry bodies to provide them with, um, with support and take some of that burden away from them and, and give them clear guidance, which is what you know, we're trying to do. So what sort of questions have they been asking you of late? Um, some of the ones that we've uh, that we've touched on already, really. So, absolutely, you know, what is going to be the impact on my shopping basket today, in uh, in its most general sense? So, customers saying or asking, um, you know, which which of my products are imported from the EU? Which ones are likely to be impacted uh, on availability? Which ones are likely to be impacted from a tariff perspective as well? Um, and then asking. You know, bid food. What are you doing to mitigate that risk for me? Um, what other options have you got on products that we can look at that aren't EU sourced? And what are the potential price implications of making those changes? Um, and also, bid food. What are you doing to um, to to look at additional stockholding in the UK for those EU sourced products to limit my risk? Um, we're also you know working with customers on. You know, specific uh, Brexit menus um, that they can bring in that are de-risked against their usual uh, menus that they would have um, on offer. And some customers, again, this is a far tougher one now in the sort of general um, economic conditions we're in, but some customers are looking at, you know, stockholding themselves as well and, uh, and building stock of certain kind of core long-life um, uh, items where they have got uh, you know, availability of storage and where they have got the, you know, the cash flow that enables them to do that. So that's very interesting. They've been looking at Brexit menus. What, what sort of things have they been uh, looking at on those menus? Um, well, products that they know aren't going to be in short supply. So cutting down on um, short shelf life products that are imported from the EU, because as I think as Jim mentioned, you know, if we see a pinch point um, on stock coming into the UK, it is likely to be on uh, fresh and short life product coming in. Um, so having that flexibility to be able to turn your menu into uh, the use of more long life ingredients um, or you know products that are sourced from the UK, mm-hmm. um, that's that's primarily what they've been uh, what they've been looking at. Um, I think one thing that kind of is forgotten about this uh, in this conversation though is. Um, there's this assumption that you know UK product will be plentiful and you know enough to go around. Um, the reason we import product from the EU is because you know we don't have the availability of 
of produce in the UK to satisfy our needs. Uh, if we get an influx of demand for UK products, that will hit the availability of UK products and also impact on the pricing of UK product as well. So just putting British products on the menu isn't always going to be the answer? No, it's not. And I think, you know, some of the questions that have been asked so far have, have talked about the opportunities for Brexit and you know, absolutely, um, you know, one of the things that you know, government have pushed and um, and the industry recognises is that it is a opportunity for us to buy British, to recognise local provenance, etc., um, which is, is which is an absolutely a, a positive that could come off the back of the, the EU exit. Um, but you know there is an impact on pricing and there is an impact on availability for uh, for UK produce. So I think for me it's it's about keeping menus flexible. It's about keeping menus agile. Um, you know, we shouldn't forget also that we're going into a Christmas period, you know, pre-EU exit as well, which is also likely to be very tricky for a number of uh, operators, both with their stocking levels, the demand that they can anticipate, and the potential surplus stock that they might have coming into January. And that needs to be managed alongside, um, you know, the inevitable consequences of the EU exit as well. Mm-hmm. And, and have they been doing their sums about the impact of GT and tariffs on their menus or are they waiting to see if there's a trade deal? Yeah, I think that it, it absolutely depends on the customer. Some customers are having um, very in-depth conversations with us at the moment. Some are a little bit further behind on the curve. Uh, and that's a mixture of, I guess, businesses' appetite for risk and also businesses' available resource to to look at these things, as I say, when they've got people on furlough and they've got other priorities like you know keeping their business running from uh, from the impacts of of COVID. So um, yeah, I think it uh, I think it depends. So what sort of support have they actually been asking for from you and your team? Um, so they've been asking for um, tariff impact. They've been asking for um, where risk is associated against the products that they purchase. They've been asking us for um, contingencies against their baskets of products that they're purchasing um, and looking at alternatives with us. Um, They've been looking at their spring and summer menus for next year and um, thinking about how they de-risk that by either buying products that that are lower risk or looking at UK sourcing. Um, so, yeah, there's a variety of questions that are being asked. And uh, I guess, as Jim alluded to before, you know, our answers to some of those questions in some areas can be very concrete. And, you know, we are, we are able to support on other areas like tariff impacts. Um, you know, we're giving our, the best information that's available at the time. And, and actually, when you look at tariff impacts, you know, some of the numbers are, are quite scary. And, you know, in the, on the back of you know the the challenges that the industry are facing at the moment when you're looking at potential double digit uh, tariff impacts from a percentage point of view um, you know that's more than you know most operators can can cover and it's and it's more than most consumers will be able to pay um, when they're when they're eating out so they're concerned about having to pass that on to the consumer especially at this uh, this stage in the year yeah I mean we've got you know we've got low low levels of consumer confidence um, you know we've got High levels of um, higher levels of unemployment, which is probably likely to get to get worse, um, and we've got the restrictions from lockdown that will continue over the over the coming weeks and probably into the new year and beyond. 
So uh, absolutely, you know, putting up prices um, to consumers really, you know, isn't an option at the moment in trying to drive footfall back into into sites. But um, you know, that's I guess why we're all hopeful and remain positive that a deal can be concluded because um, you know a no deal scenario and move to kind of WTO tariffs paints a, a bit of a bleak picture for us come uh, come January time. So no pressure on the negotiators at the moment. Um, so you mentioned a little bit about the kind of support that customers are looking for from Bidfood. What kind of shape and form has, uh, has that support come in? So um, we are sending out, I guess the first thing to say is we're sending out regular proactive communications now to customers um, uh, sort of bi-weekly, um, telling them about the changes that that are happening in the um, the industry negotiations, what the impacts may be um, for them um, from January. So as the situation evolves, we're keeping our customers abreast of that information. Um, that information is filtering out through account managers, it's filtering out through social media, it's filtering out through websites. So again, um, you know, customers uh, of Bidfood should be looking um, to all those areas to get the uh, to get the latest information. They're also able to put in requests to their account teams um, to run their baskets against um, uh, our database of risk and look at contingency products in advance, and the same with uh, and the same with tariffs as well. So, if they have a particular concern or question, who do they go and talk to at Bidfeed? I mean, their account manager first and foremost. I would say that would be the the most sensible uh, start point. I mean, our account managers are fully briefed on our Brexit preparations. And if they can't answer the question themselves, then they have a team of experts sitting behind them. Um, We've set up a central comms team um, here at our kind of um, uh, our central office in Slough. Um, where you know socially distanced, of course, um, but those people are on hand to deal with customer queries, questions, and um, as I say, this uh, we've got a lot of different customers across a lot of different sectors with uh, very different needs, and um, you know we can't anticipate what all those questions might be, but you know we'll do our best to answer anything that comes in. So um, when it comes to planning for Brexit um, and the exit from uh, the EU, what areas do you think are the most crucial for bid food and customers to talk to each other about to manage risk as we approach the end of December and beyond? I think we need to understand um, you know, what customers are planning to do with menus going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I think being able to forecast um, products um, and secure stock um, and availability of product in advance is important, um, particularly for our kind of large national customers where their usage is uh, is, is fairly high. Um, so that uh, communication between customer and account manager on um, menus and menu design going forward will be uh, important. And then conversely, um, you know, from bid food back to customers. Um, you know, letting them know of the risks on products, letting them know um, in advance where there potentially could be pinch points on certain product areas or categories, and also helping them to understand, you know, where those um, where those risks are in you know in the full supply chain. We've talked a lot about the challenges on Brexit, and I'm going to put to you, Tim, one of the questions I put to James earlier. Um, are there any opportunities that you or customers um, 
see um, that businesses could take advantage of down the line in the medium or longer term? There are opportunities for uh, for customers. They are hard to see at the moment because um, as we work through this this EU exit planning, um, it is a distraction from the uh, from the challenges that we are facing on the back of COVID. Um, however, in the short term, I think there will be more challenges and there will be opportunities. But in the medium to long term, absolutely, there is an opportunity to champion British product to. Um, to support local growers, to support local producers, and I think um, you know one of the um, one of the key points of uh, Brexit as we've seen this sort of surge in um, you know affinity for Britain and you know the pride that we have in our country, and I think that will resonate onto um, menus, and you know customers will be looking for provenance um, for British products, and uh, you know there's an opportunity there for um, for our customers to champion the products that they're buying and tell the stories behind them. Mm-hmm. And as one of those leading the charge at Bid Food on Brexit planning, what are your top tips for customers looking to plan for as smooth an exit as possible? Um, be flexible, be agile, um, read as much as you possibly can, read the communications that are sent to you from Bid Food, you know, log on to the FWD website, see all the, the plethora of information uh, that's there, um, look at the basket of products that you're currently buying and understand your risks in advance, and then think uh, about the contingency. So what might you do in the event of a product running short? You know, How might you substitute that product around? What change may you make to a menu? Um, also, as we get closer to the deadline, um, you know, there might be opportunities to, um, you know, to purchase some stock in in advance and um, and to sit on that stock if you're able to. There might be opportunities to source stock at, you know, preferred rates before tariffs come in, etc. So um, there are a number of areas which, you know, if, if I was a customer, I would be looking at. At the moment, we're in late October. Um, there's still t- over two months to go before the EU exit, and a lot will change in the meantime. So. At the moment, I think it's a it's a watching brief, it's a it's a planning brief. But um, as we move into December, um, I think there will be actions that customers will be looking to take, both in menu changes and also potentially securing stock of uh, of some products in advance. So to wrap this up. Let's start with uh, James. Is there anything about the Brexit process so far that's frustrated you? Uh, When you say, is there anything that's frustrating me, I would say, is there anything that hasn't frustrated me? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the the lack of information is shocking, really, at this late stage. Um, And the complacency by officials and ministers. This in itself would be a huge amount of work. But when you're having to do this, at a time when you're dealing with a pandemic, the like of which we haven't seen for many, many years, alongside planning for potentially you know, the busiest period uh, of sales at the end of the year, at a time when the hospitality industry is largely uh, shut down in many areas and restricted in many others. I think you would say this is the worst possible time to be doing this and having to do it largely in the dark at times. So yeah, it's immensely frustrating. Um, and I think we'll look back on this when we write the history of 2020 and say what madness it was to not have gone for an extension. I know that's a slightly political point, but, you know, if sense had prevailed, we wouldn't be dealing with this now. 
And Tim, your thoughts? Are you amongst the frustrated or are you taking heart from the engagement and collaboration we've seen? I'm taking heart from the collaboration, but I'm immensely frustrated. I mean, I think it's is, you know, we're two months out and we still don't really know any more than we did, you know, a few years ago. So um, there's been an awful lot of potentially unproductive activity that's gone on on behalf of wholesalers, industry bodies and customers that could have been far better, you know, pushed in the direction of, um, you know, other uh, areas that, uh, that require our attention. So uh, for me, the frustration is that ultimately a lot of good work has been done in uh, Brexit planning and preparation on behalf of uh, lots of different people. But ultimately it might not be required and it might not be necessary to the level that we've done it so um and and that just comes back to the fact that we don't know any more now than we did two three years ago you know the conversation hasn't moved on there's still brinkmanship there's still negotiations going on and it just seems inevitable to me that you know we're going to run this um fairly close to the wire again um which will mean that you know we're incurring cost um we're incurring work uh, we're throwing resource at it from all areas um, and then potentially we may end up with a deal anyway hopefully so where are you sitting with all of the hard work that's gone into planning and preparation are you feeling confident given the uncertainty that we can navigate the end of december bid food will be doing the best that they possibly can to support customers um, we are leaving no stone unturned and we are putting our expertise in the right places to um, you know, reduce the risk for customers. Uh, no one's got a crystal ball and no one knows um, you know, what January may bring, but I'm very optimistic about the fact that if you're a customer of Bidfood, you are in the safest hands that you possibly can be going forward and going into the EU exit. From my side, I just touched on a point, I think James almost started with, I'm confident that we won't leave without a deal. I'm I think it would be inconceivable for the country that we would leave without a deal. Um, but I think the important thing for us and our customers is to know that we are still preparing for the worst and making sure that they can get product in that situation. But I would think that situation is exceptionally unlikely. Anything from you, James, as a last thought? Are you confident as we come towards the end of the year? Well, we've got no choice but to get on with it. So we'll work with what we can, get as much information as is available, and hopefully everything will be all right on the night. I mean, the wheels will keep moving, and food will keep coming in. There's, there's clearly going to be pressure points, but no one's going to starve as a result of this, thankfully. I mean, <laughs> if that's the best we can hope for from Brexit, that's a fairly low aspiration, I know. But, uh, you know, we'll make, we'll make the most of the situation and, and look for the positives. So brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, James Bilby, CEO of the Federation of Wholesale Distributors. No problem. Thanks very much. Really enjoyed it. And thanks to Jim Gouldy, Director of Supply Chain and Technical Services at Bidfood. No problem. Thank you, Catherine. And thanks also to Tim Adams, Director of Corporate Sales and Marketing at Bidfood. No problem. It's been a great session. So it's been really interesting to hear our guests today lift the lid on how the industry and how Bidfood have been preparing for our exit from the EU behind the scenes. Whilst we have no idea as we talk to you today which way negotiations will go, or even when they will conclude, there's a lot to digest for us all about how to plan for best and worst case scenarios. One thing is for sure, we will be leaving the EU on the 31st of December, 
and we all need to be ready for this new phase of change. I hope you found the advice in today's podcast practical and useful as you undertake your own plans and preparations. I would love to thank James, Jim and Tim for joining me today and thank you too for listening. You can find this episode and all of our other podcasts as well as lots of useful information about Brexit and how Bidfood can support you now and in the future on our website bidfood.co.uk.